we have a, a real treat today, a, a rare privilege uh, to get to hear from our very own Pastor Travis. He is going to be preaching and teaching the word today. And uh, if you don't know Pastor Travis, you, you need to because he is a good man and I love him deep, deeply. And, and uh, we've known each other for a little over a year, year and a half now and gotten to be uh, good friends. And let me just, before he jumps in, I need to let you know a few things. Number one, he's going to say y'all a bunch. And that's Texas for all of you people. He's also going to say the word naked because it's in Genesis 1. And what he means by that is no clothing on. So just the Texas translation, uh, just want to make sure we're all tracking together. So uh, with that said, bro, is it cool? Can I just pray for you and pray for our time together and uh, pray for myself too? So uh, let's do this. Let's pray for uh, Pastor Travis and then uh, turn our attention to what God wants to teach us through his word today. So God, thank you for my brother Travis. God, I thank you for the friendship that we have. I thank you for the partnership in the ministry that we have. God, my prayer right now is that you would uh, set his heart on fire, fill him with a fresh uh, filling of your Holy Spirit to teach your word, God, to teach your truth. God, I pray that all of us here today would have soft hearts, would have listening ears, God. We want to be challenged. We want to be uh, grown. We want to even be corrected, Lord God, where we need to be corrected. And, And God, I pray that you would do so today through my brother Travis. We ask that you would bless this time and it would be all for the glory of God and the glory of Jesus, his son. We pray it in his name. Amen. 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 All Thank right. You, Pastor Aaron. Uh, he's right. I come from a rich Southern heritage. I was born and raised in Texas. My dad grew up in Pine Ridge, Mississippi, which he always says is an old Indian term for land of the redneck. And my mom's from Athens, Georgia. So I do my best to bring to the Northwest, especially to this pastoral team, some deep, rich, redneck Southern culture. So hopefully they appreciate that. Um, the other benefit of that heritage is I grew up learning how to talk really fast, and that's going to come in handy today because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, This really should be three separate sermons. Each of the themes we're unpacking are weighty themes, but I'm going to do my best to run through this at at a quick but yet understandable speed. And just so you all know, if you're trying to take notes and, and you can't keep up at any point or you don't catch everything, we post all of the notes on uh, Mondays to soundcitybiblechurch.com. We post the audio from the sermon, but also the full PDF of the notes, scripture references, some additional resources will be listed in there as well. So I want you to be able to take notes as you go if that's helpful, but also don't be nervous if you miss it. We'll have some uh, follow-up help for you posted tomorrow. With that, let's jump in. Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be quite a ride today. Um, For those of y'all that are here for the first time or maybe haven't uh, caught wind of where we're at, we're in a series called Welcome to Sound City Bible Church. And the intent is not to say, hey, let us talk about ourselves. The intent is to say, hey, here are the values that we hold to. As Pastor Aaron said last week in his sermon, the values we hold, that which is most important to us, shapes how we live out our life. And so we want to talk about these core values, the things that we hold to, because that'll give everyone an understanding of what it is we stand for and what it is we're going to be living for and what's going to shape the way we live as a church. So in this series, the first week we covered our mission statement, which is to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus, receiving grace, being disciples, and making disciples. Then weeks two, which was last week, this week, week three, and week four, we're talking about our core values. Last week was the values as it it deals with our relationship to God. This week's the values as it deals with our relationship with one another. And next week is going to be our values as it shapes the way we relate to the world outside of the church. And so after those, we'll go through a few weeks on doctrine. Weeks five, six, and seven, we'll unpack doctrine. And then the last week will be about covenant, 
what it means, uh, what a covenant means, and what does it mean to be ministers of a new covenant. So, so in broad strokes, that's our whole sermon series, and today we're landing in the values that deal with how we relate to one another as Christians. Uh, a verse to kind of set the stage for today that I want to share with you is Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Uh, for those of you that have been here for a long time, uh, hopefully you can appreciate this, but uh, one of our, our legacies is we had a tremendous focus on taking the gospel to people who had never met Jesus so that they could hear the great news and be redeemed and restored into relationship with Jesus and with God. And, and while that was a terrific legacy that, that we're built upon, sometimes we did it to the error of caring for our own people, meaning we were so focused on reaching the next people that needed to hear the gospel that sometimes we didn't care for our own people well. And, and that's an oversight. And actually, in light of this verse, it would say, especially those who are part of the family of God, we should be caring for. So that's an area that as a church, when we replanted in January and we had a fresh start, we said, you know, we want to continue to have the gospel go forward, but we have to take care of our people well. And so these things that we're sharing today are areas of, of my life that God has been addressing over the last number of years, some gospel distortions that God's been helping me see more clearly to understand what our relationship with one another is founded in. And so I'm excited to unpack this stuff with you today. Uh, we'll be looking at three specific values, the priority of relationship, progress, not perfection, and the idea of members being equipped for ministry. So before I dive into those three, let me just pray real quick to get us started. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the chance to come together and to open up your word and to trace themes through your scripture and to see the key things that you value. And I pray that by your grace, your spirit would work through us to help us understand those values and to implant them deeply in our hearts so that they would indeed become values that, that we hold dear so that it would shape our lives and that we would live in a way that, that mirrors the life you purposed us for. So I pray that you would open our hearts, prepare us for this message. I pray that you would, by your grace, speak through me and uh, let your word be proclaimed clearly that all may hear. In your name we pray, amen. So let's dive in. Uh, the first value I'm going to cover today is technically value four in the series. So when you see value four, I'm not missing the first three points that I was supposed to cover. I'm starting in at the second part in this series with value four, five, and six that we'll cover today. In value four, we're going to talk about priority of relationship. And to start, I want to look at how relationship was established in the first place. And we see that in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then when we look at John 1, 1 and 2, we see that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that first account was in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The second account was in John, which is in the New Testament, which is much later in the Bible. But they're both talking about that early initial start when God created everything. And what we see is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all present. That verse in John, when it talks about the Word, that's actually referring to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is often referred to as the Word of God. And so the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were all present at creation, and they had been present, existing eternally together um, I'm not going to unpack this idea. This is a much, this is a whole other sermon on its own. But the idea that, that God is a Trinitarian God, meaning he's, he's three distinct persons, but he's one God. He's not three different gods. It's one God that exists in three persons. And, and that's key to recognize 
God had relationship. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't alone, some individual out in the universe that had a void and he needed to fill the, the friendship void by creating us. He didn't need us. He was fulfilled in the Trinitarian existence, the fact that they already had relationship with another and in the joy and the overflow of that, they created man and they created man to be in relationship with God and with one another, but he didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. So God is a God of relationship. Secondly, we see that God created us for relationship. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which again, we just said God was a God, was a God of unity. He is a God of relationship. So he created us to be in that same image. He wanted us to also be in relationship. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Again, he didn't create them alone. He created them together in relationship. Uh, Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 1 and 2 are both accounts of creation, just from slightly different perspectives. But it highlights that idea when you look at these verses that God didn't want man to be alone. That would not represent who God was because God's a God of relationship. So he made a helper. And so they had Adam and Eve together in unity, both with one another, but also in relationship with God. We see in other places that God would walk in the garden with Adam. And so... We were made for relationship with God and for relationship with one another, but very quickly the tables turn and relationship is broken. We see in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you should not eat of the tree of the garden? Now, there's a dialogue from there, but in short, the, the serpent, Satan, slips in and he says, hey, you know, I don't know that God really loves you. Like, he's holding some things back from you. And he introduces some, some basically some biblical distortion, some gospel distortion. He challenges the word that God had shared with Adam and Eve and the instructions he had given them not to eat of the tree. So Eve, instead of worshiping God and being obedient, decides to pursue her own glory, her own interest, her own satisfaction, and she eats of the apple, and Adam, who was there with her, also ate. And the result of that we see in Genesis 3, 7 and 8, the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and y'all can laugh. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Right off the bat, the, one of the first impacts of sin was it severed their relationship from God. Instead of enjoying walking with him and enjoying his presence, they were ashamed and they went into hiding. So we see that relationship with God is broken. We also see relationship with man was broken. In Genesis 3, 9 through 13, uh, the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Uh, we have eaten of the tree, uh, excuse me, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I'll pause real quickly. Uh, Adam had a chance to own it. He could have said, you know what? You called me to cultivate and to shepherd and to care for her. And I sat by passively and watched as the enemy led her astray and I failed my duty. He didn't say anything. He just abdicated and he said, you know what? It's her problem. He blame shifted onto her. Then we see the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We see a number of patterns in here, and this is a whole other sermon in itself. But at the very least, we see sin severed relationship, not only with God, but with one another. Instead of Adam caring for his wife and protecting her or trying to restore relationship, 
he blame shifts and he, he puts it on her and then she blame shifts to the, the serpent. And, and both of them are just looking to defend themselves and they're not taking ownership of anything and they're not caring for one another. And in that, you have to imagine that sin must have severed relationship with Adam. Can you imagine afterwards, Adam like, you know, Eve, like, why'd you throw me under the bus? And Adam's like, why did you, you know, just instantly fighting and bickering and blame shifting instead of love and grace towards one another. So relationship with God had been broken, but also with one another, with man. But luckily, God had a plan and God loves us. And so we see right on the heels of that in Genesis 3, 9 through 10, God initiates and God pursues. And this is key because this is the very beginning. We're three chapters in, Genesis 3, Genesis 1, 2, 3. These are the first three chapters of a long book. And we see from the very beginning, he puts in place a plan that he carries throughout all of Scripture. And that's that he initiates and pursues. And here's what we see. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now I already read some of these verses, but I want to highlight that first statement there. God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. See, right off the bat, God didn't wait for Adam to come running and say, man, I made, it, I made a mistake. I need to fix things. How can I make things right with you, God? Adam wasn't seeking that out. God initiated and pursued him while he was off hiding. And we see that carry throughout scripture. We also see that God gives a hint at a restoration plan. Um, it wasn't just that moment he was walking around looking for Adam. He had a plan that he had for all of time to restore us. And we see hints of it in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above the beast of the field. On your belly you will go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is actually the very first gospel message. God is saying, there's nothing you can do to make it right, but I have a plan. I'm gonna send someone who will be the offspring of the woman to conquer Satan. And so this was the very first gospel where God was saying it. He didn't, he didn't spell it out in full detail to say Jesus is coming, but, but all the elements of what Jesus was gonna do, conquering sin, conquering death, is there in this first statement. So we see from the very beginning, God had a plan. I wanna also note, before we move on to some of the other stories and trace this theme through scripture, that in the garden, right after this encounter, God ends up kicking them out of the Garden of Eden and the greatest loss wasn't that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. The greatest loss was that their relationship with God was broken. And secondarily, their relationship with one another. So the whole purpose of the Garden of Eden was they were created in a place where they could exist with God and enjoy his presence and worship him forever. But because they chose to worship their own interests, that relationship with God was severed. We see that as we move on from Genesis, God not only presented a hint of a restoration plan, but shortly thereafter in the book of Exodus, he actually gives us a beautiful picture, a beautiful model of his redemptive plan. Um, I'm just going to kind of paint some broad strokes. Hopefully y'all are familiar with this story. If not, you can find it in the book of Exodus. But, but God had made a promise to a man named Abraham saying, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation, uh, which was interesting because Abraham was old and beyond the years where he could even have children. But God miraculously gave him children uh, that turned into grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, and they became a massive nation, and they ended up in the land of Egypt. And while they're in the land of Egypt, they grow tremendously. And eventually a Pharaoh arose who didn't know them and hated them and began to oppress them and made them slaves. And so the people are sitting here thinking, well, wait a minute, God promised we'd be a great nation. And while we're big in number, we're slaves. That's, that's not what God promised us. So they were suffering, but God intended that as an opportunity for him to display his glory. And so God put in place a plan 
to restore them. He called a man named Moses and he said, hey, Moses, I want to use you to save my people. So go to Pharaoh and tell them to let the people go. And if he doesn't, I'm going to send a series of plagues. And so he unleashed 10 plagues that, that gave him an opportunity to show his power and his glory so that all of Egypt would realize that God was the most powerful one, that he was even more powerful than their Pharaoh who they worshiped. And in the tail end of that, Pharaoh said, okay, let, him, let the people go. The Israelites headed out, and then he had a change of heart, a hardened heart, and he decided to pursue after them. And as he pursued after the Israelites to kill them, they came up to the, uh, the Red Sea, and God, in his grace, parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could go through to the other side. And as the uh, Egyptians followed, the waves came in, crushed in, killing the Egyptians, setting God's people free. An amazing display of God's love and grace for his people, setting them free in miraculous ways. As soon as they get over the other side, they realize they're in the desert. God continues his love and provision by providing water and food in miraculous ways. And, and after all of these things God had done, he then called Moses up onto a mountain to give him the Ten Commandments. And, and I say that all of those things were done before the Ten Commandments because it's important to realize the Ten Commandments weren't given first. God didn't say, if you hold all these things, then I'll come by and I'll, I'll do some great things for you. God initiated and pursued them and said, I have a great plan for you. I want to take you to the promised land. He did all of these incredible things, showing him his favor. And then after showing them his favor, he said, you know, because of all of this, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments as a way that you can respond and worship to me. If you're obedient to these, it'll allow you to walk in close fellowship with me. And that's where you'll experience the most joy. That's what I've purposed for you. So God does all of this. And we see in that Exodus story, this beautiful uh, microcosm, like, like in that one story, we see a picture of God's entire redemptive plan laid out for us. Uh, there's actually a great book called Redemption. I believe it's by Mike Wilkerson that really unpacks that. And I'd encourage all of you to pick it up and read a copy. Um, but in the midst of that, right after Moses has come down with the Ten Commandments, all the things God has done, we see this interesting exchange in Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's basically saying, hey, I made a promise and I'm going to take you there. So you guys get up and y'all go to the promised land that I promised I would take you to. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you're a stiff-necked people. Now, what had happened is while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, after all the miraculous things God had done, the people gathered together, piled all their golden things together, and they had an idol made so they could worship a golden calf instead of God who had just rescued them. So God, in his grace, is saying, you know what, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to go ahead and send you to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you because I might kill you all. You've just turned your backs on me after all that I've done. In this important response from Moses in Exodus 33:15, he says, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. So the Israelites were all excited about the promised land and totally missed that the most important thing that had happened was God had graciously restored his presence with them. He had brought them out of Egypt and he, his presence had descended and was there with them in their midst. That was the greatest gift. Going to the promised land didn't mean anything if God wasn't there. And Moses understood that, but the Israelites had completely missed it. And we see from this a picture that God's real desire isn't, isn't just to take us to some happy place so we can enjoy life forever. Our greatest enjoyment is with him in his presence. That's his greatest blessing, is restoring that relationship that he initially created us for. We see then in the New Testament that God fulfills his restoration plan. 
He promised it in Genesis. He gave us a picture of what it would look like in Exodus. And then in the New Testament, he fulfills it. And he does that through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his own son that he sent to to restore us back into relationship with him. Jesus came so that he could die in our place and take upon himself the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to bear that wrath and judgment. And instead, we could be reunited with Christ. So we see that the first four books of the Gospels, uh, the first four books of the New Testament, which are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of the life of Jesus. And then we have a summary of what was accomplished through the life of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 17 begins, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We also see that not only does God fulfill his plan through Jesus and restore us to himself, he also restores us into relationship with one another. Romans 12.5 says, We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He's restored us into his body. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. And we also see in Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, for through him, your fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God. So it's important to note that the gospel, the the plan that God had in place from the very beginning, the whole point was to restore restore us both into relationship with himself and into relationship with one another. It's important to notice those two things because some groups, some Christians, they will put such an emphasis on your personal relationship with Jesus. Man, there's this, you know, you, it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. And they talk about worship and abiding with Jesus and enjoying that. But to the degree that they never talk about your relationship with anyone else. And it's easy to think that it's just about you and Jesus. And while that's a key piece, that's not the whole story. Because Jesus also restored us into relationship with one another. And if we go to the other unhealthy extreme... Some groups will get so focused on, man, God's called us to love one another, so we need to do acts of service and mercy ministry and care for one another and do all of these things. And, and you know, we don't want to isolate any, so we need to love people and the gospel offends some people, and we're called to love them, so let's just kind of tone down the gospel and not share the gospel. Let's just go love and serve them. But when we remove the gospel, all of a sudden we've lost what it's all for, and we're just doing empty acts of service. It has to be both. We're restored to God first and foremost, but then he also restores us with one another. It's important that we keep those two pieces in tension. Well, all of this then begs the question, do you see how God's priority of relationship is not just an idea, it's not in a verse somewhere that we grabbed hold of. I mean, this is a deep and core theme that runs throughout Scripture. God values relationship. He created us for relationship. And even when our sin breaks that relationship, 
he in his grace initiates and pursues us. He creates an avenue through which we can be restored into relationship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son so that we can be made one with God again. And then he makes us, uh, restores us into relationship with one another as well. This is an incredibly deep theme. It was present in Genesis with Adam and Eve as he hinted at the plan. He showed us the model of that in the story of the Exodus. And that continues all the way through until it culminates in Jesus who actually came and died and rose again and then calls us to live in unity with him. So this is a key, key theme throughout scripture, not just some simple idea we thought would be fun for us to hold on to as a church. Hopefully you've noticed that, um, how it unfolds, because how things unfold is also important. So let's run back through those stories and let's look at it through the filter of you know, God's values. And we see that God values progress, not perfection is value number five, which again is the second value today, but the fifth in the series. Um, but we see that God initiates and pursues. Adam and Eve, they were hiding. Remember, God, God didn't wait for them to come say, hey, I've screwed up. Can we make it right? How can I make this right, God? It wasn't a work of their own. God sought them. God pursued them and God initiated towards them. Um, God initiated and pursued the Israelites. They were harboring idols, and yet God just pursued them and initiated and led them out of Egypt. And God initiates and pursues us through the work of Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing we could do to make things right with God. There was nothing Adam and Eve, the Israelites, any of us from the beginning of time to the end of time can do to make it right with God. But he was gracious to pursue us and initiate and to show us a way that we could be restored. Again, a major theme through scripture that God initiates and pursues us. We also see that God's faithful even when we aren't. I want to read a passage from Ezekiel, and then I'll unpack the context that this was in. Ezekiel 20, thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things. Notice, God moved first before asking anything of them. On the day I chose Israel happened first, so he chose them and pursued them. And then in response, he said, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you. Do not defy yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake their idols of Egypt. So let's go back to that story in Egypt. The final of the 10 plagues, I said there were 10 plagues. The last one was the death of the firstborn. And what God said is, hey, I'm going to send an angel of death and he's going to kill the firstborn in every home, except if you will just put blood on your doorpost, the blood of a lamb, that sacrifice will cover your sins and the angel of death will pass over and you won't suffer the consequences of this last plague. So picture the angel of death comes down. He comes up to the first home and he sees Egyptian idols everywhere and he goes in and he kills their firstborn son. Then he comes up to the next home and he sees Egyptian idols everywhere and he's about to go in, but he sees blood on the doorpost, so he passes by. See, there was no difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Both of them were harboring idols. Now, when I was younger, I kind of grew up with this thought of surely what they did is when God you know, revealed his glory, they said, oh my gosh, this is the real deal. Like we've, we've lost sight of this. I figured surely they cleaned out all of the idols and then they put the blood on the doorpost. But Ezekiel here makes it clear that they were harboring idols throughout the entire process and yet God was gracious. He realized 
they're going to be a work in progress. They're not perfected yet. That's why they need my grace. So he gave them a restoration plan. It was so intense. Ezekiel later even said that um, God said he would end their lewdness and their whoring that began in the land of Egypt. Again, the Israelites were deeply sinful, and yet God provided a means of grace so that they could be spared the consequence of their sin. Even as they were harboring idols, the angel of death passed by and God initiated and pursued and laid out his restoration plan to free them from Egypt. And that continues. That's not just true of then. It's true of us and uh, true of the New Testament and what God shows us. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that hope that that gives to us is God's faithful. For those of us that believe in him, he's faithful even when we're not. And what that means is, guys, we are going to make mistakes. We cannot be a church that has this attitude of, well, once you meet Jesus, your life will look perfect because he does away with all your sins, so then you won't have any more problems. That's a false gospel, and a lot of churches live under that, and the people that attend feel guilt and shame because the truth is none of us have it all worked out. We all have issues. We're all a work of progress. We're not perfected. What's interesting to note, though, is even though God gives us grace and he, he loves us and he meets us where we are and he gives grace overlooking our sin, he doesn't just leave us in that place. He calls us to change. He invites us to obey him knowing that when we obey him and we walk with him, that's where our greatest joy will be found. So let's look at some verses that unpack this idea that God calls us to change. In Romans 6, starting in verse 1, it says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism to death in order that just as Christ was raised from the death by the glory of the Father, we too can walk in the newness of life. So you are saved by grace, but God invites you to change. He has empowered you to walk in a new life and to walk in obedience as an act of worship to him, knowing that's where your greatest joy will be found. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable God, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. The New International Version actually uses the phrase, in view of God's mercy, meaning in light of all that God's done, respond and offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's a way to worship him because of all that he's done. It's not the other way around. It's not do all of these things so that God can redeem and restore you. It's God has already redeemed and restored you and done so much to bless you. So respond in an act of worship to him. Again, I want to draw a contrast here because um, some of the churches and some of the Christians out there will have this, this, this way of relating that kind of says, well, if you've been saved by grace, your life will show it because you won't have problems anymore. And when you make mistakes and you come and you talk about your struggles, they'll say, what's your problem? You shouldn't be having that problem anymore. Stop it. Just stop it. Be holy already. And God's saying, you're not going to be holy. You're going to make mistakes. You're still going to wrestle with your sin nature, but my grace covers that. The other opposite extreme would be you come in and you're, you're sharing your struggles and as brothers and sisters, they gather around you and they say, oh man, I know I struggle too. And you know, let's just go, oh, gosh, we're going to struggle and we're always going to struggle. And it's okay. There's grace and there's never a call to change. That's an equal distortion. The truth that we see in scripture is there's a tension between both of those. We need to offer grace because none of us are perfect. Even those that have met Jesus and have begun to be transformed, we still have sin. We still have struggles, but we need to encourage one another towards change. 
Because our greatest fulfillment is when we are worshiping God by living in obedience to him and abiding with him. And it's unloving to let our brothers and sisters wallow in sin when we can invite them to change. But we do it with a heart of grace, knowing it's by God's grace alone that that change can happen. We see that God warns us as well. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, I want to unpack this idea that we're all called to exhort one another. That phrase, exhort one another every day, um, it is this mutual thing. It is not some of you exhort some of the others. It's not the pastors need to exhort the body. All of us are called to exhort one another, to challenge and encourage each other. And, And if you think about that, Our hearts are protected from the deceitfulness of our own sin as we proclaim the gospel and speak truth to encourage and exhort one another, our brothers, and our heart is guarded from deceitfulness in as others speak truth back to us. It's a give and take. We need to be proclaiming the gospel to encourage others and having them speak the gospel into our life to encourage us as well. It's a mutual thing, and that's why we want everyone in the body to be involved in the work of the ministry. Also note that it's a daily thing. It's not once in a blue moon. It's a daily thing that we need to be in relationship. So we're not called to be in isolation. When somebody's not involved in the body, that raises a red flag because God said, no, you need to be engaged on a daily basis because your hearts are so prone towards sin, which again, we see in that story of the Israelites, and it's true of all of us. Our hearts are constantly turned towards sin, and we need to be guarding one another as we speak the gospel and receive the gospel from each other. As an illustration, um, I would honestly say one of the most important and valuable connection points during the course of each week is as the elders come together. We have a time specifically set for us to check in on one another where we purely just ask questions and we share our struggles and we're honest about areas that we're failing and um, any sin in our lives or struggles so that we can pray for each other and challenge each other and encourage each other. And it's a safe place. The truth is we're all in progress as well. We're not perfect by any means. There are probably people in this church that are far more holy and, and have an intimate walk with the Lord more than we do. And we're all progressing together. So it's a safe place to be honest and to struggle and to wrestle through things and to challenge each other. Uh, And we know it's a safe place because this past week, Pastor Aaron dropped one of the most surprised moms of all. He actually confessed that he went and tried out for American Idol at one point. We didn't judge him. We just offered grace. We might have picked at him a little bit, but um, even amongst us, there's a safety to share, and we need to be able to walk in the light with one another. Um, In all seriousness, the American Idol story aside, which is true, um, it really is an incredibly rich time. All of us need a safe place to be honest and bring our brokenness. And I'll have a story about that later in this series or the sermon as I close up. Um, But do you see how important this theme of progress, not perfection is? It's throughout scripture. It's not just a verse we've pulled out of the air. It's throughout scripture. That's why these are core values we wanna hold on to. And it's so easy to forget that God initiates and that God pursues and that God's faithful even when we aren't. It's easy to fall into feeling guilty like we should be doing better and to let the enemy make us feel ashamed and to wanna hide. But we have to hold on to these truths and remember God continually pursues us even in our sin because he's faithful even when we're not. And his charge to us isn't a list of weighty demands but it's an invitation to worship him through obedience because he knows that's where our greatest joy will be found. And that moves us into the next area, which is value number six in the series or value number three today. The idea that members are called to be equipped for ministry. Um, First and foremost, I want everyone to take note that we are all called to ministry. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you'll note, we read these verses earlier. Uh, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And pay attention. I'm reading this verse again because I want to bring out this specific point right now. But he's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Um, there are a bunch of ways we could unpack this idea. I'm going to just propose this. In the Old Testament, there were three primary offices, means through which God mediated his relationship with man. There was the office of prophet, and the prophet would speak a word of truth to break the hard-hearted and to point them back to Jesus. They would come in and say, hey, wake up. You've lost sight of God. You're chasing your own interests. You need to repent, and you need to turn back because you, you need to worship God, and, and life will be better if you're walking with him than what you're doing because you're heading for death and destruction. The priest would care for and restore the brokenhearted. So when somebody realized they had sinned, they would come to the priest and say, man, I've made a mistake. I can't make it right. And the priest would mediate through sacrifices and there would be bloodshed as a means to cover the sin of the people. And that priest would help in the process to help restore their relationship back with God. And that was for the brokenhearted. And then the king was there to point the whole kingdom to Christ and to honor Christ and to worship and to model that and to think about how to grow the kingdom by, by seeing the kingdom be fruitful and multiply and lead more people into a worship of God so they could be a kingdom set apart, a kingdom that worshiped God. And that was the role of the king. And we see those Old Testament roles were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus when he came. He is the prophet. He has said that he is the word. He is the truth, the life. And so ultimately, his words that he came and spoke are the truth that confront all of us and convict all of our hard hearts to point us back to Jesus and to save us from our sin. As the priest, he is the high priest. He mediated through the ultimate sacrifice when he died on the cross, shedding his blood to cover our sins. Just like in, in the Passover, we saw the blood put on the doorpost and the angel of death pass by, even though they were harboring idols. Well, Jesus died knowing that we were still harboring idols and sin, and yet his blood covers us. So God sees us as holy and righteous through the blood of Jesus, knowing our sins have been paid for. That allows us to be restored into relationship with him. And then Jesus ascended and is actually sitting on the throne as our high priest interceding on our behalf. So Jesus is our high priest and he was the king who's ultimately at the throne building the kingdom and preparing the kingdom for the future and inviting us to go and to expand the kingdom and to see his kingdom grow by adding more and more people to his kingdom, people that would worship God. And so as we think about our role, as we're called to be ambassadors, we're called to be prophets who speak truth to confront the hard-hearted and to point them to Jesus. We are called to be priests who help mediate by, by encouraging people and, and helping them restore their relationship with Jesus and caring for them when they're brokenhearted. And we're called to be kings who are charged to, to think about how we help draw others into the kingdom of God. And so we are called to be ambassadors. We are called to the work of the ministry. Now, as y'all hear that, there might be some of you who think, my gosh, that's overwhelming. I'm not ready for that, but that's okay. Ephesians has a verse for you. It says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What that means in short is the pastors and, and those who are here with gifts of equipping, we're here to equip you for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
So until we have all achieved maturity and the fullness of Christ, we've got work to do. And I don't think any of us are going to reach the fullness of Christ anytime soon. So that means we've all got a lot of work to do so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Guys, we cannot be good stewards of what God is doing here as a church unless everyone recognizes their call to ministry and gets equipped and engaged in the work God has purposed them for. Now, if you're a brand new believer, this doesn't mean you get equipped and maybe 20 years from now you'll be able to do the work. God has a work of ministry for you now, and then we continually get equipped so we can be increasingly effective and increasingly involved in the work he's doing. But there is a work he has purposed from all of us. From the day we meet Jesus until the day we die, God has called us to the work of the ministry. For equipping, I'll highlight two things real quickly that we offer. Number one, the discipleship trainings. Um, we used to do training for our community group leaders, but this year we said, you know what, we need to level set and we need to make sure our entire body is equipped to understand the fundamentals of discipleship and biblical community. And so we opened up our discipleship training to everyone in the church. And I wanna encourage you to come. Our next one, we do these monthly. The next one is next Sunday after the 11 o'clock service, and it's gonna be on the building blocks of a disciple's life. And we hope that most of you are fairly comfortable with the blocks that we're gonna present, like Bible study, prayer. Yes, those are fundamental blocks. So instead of giving a long, exhaustive teaching on why it's important, we're gonna hit on that very quickly, but then we're gonna have a panel of people, and we're gonna spend the bulk of our time sharing ideas from these panelists. We're gonna present questions like, What's the most life-giving way that you engage in Bible study? And they're going to share a host of different ideas, different ways that they study the Bible so that you can walk away with a huge list of ways to enrich your personal spiritual disciplines. So I want to encourage everyone to come. If you're thinking, man, I've got those nailed, my question would be, how comfortable are you teaching it to other people? Come and bring other people with you. Who's God put in your life that you're called a disciple and bring them so that you can help teach them and you can walk through that training with them. This truly is a training that I hope all of you that call this church home can be a part of. Well, not only has God called us to be equipped for ministry, but it's important that we understand the call to ministry should be a joyful invitation. So let's look at a few verses. First, we see that Jesus endured the cross with joy. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the God. And it's important to note, Jesus wasn't like giddy excited, like, I can't wait for this. Let's go to the cross. It was not a happy moment, but he knew God was inviting him to be the means through which God displayed his glory to the world. Through Jesus's death, God was gonna reconcile the world back to him. He's gonna reconcile people back into relationship with him. So Jesus realized he got to be a vehicle to display God's glory and to restore people back into relationship with God. And for that joy, for the knowledge of what that was gonna do, he had joy as he went to endure the most incredible suffering ever. It was also a joy for Paul when he suffered, we see in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you and I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. 
because Paul knew no matter how much he had suffered, he had been stoned, like people throwing rocks at him to kill him, to stop him from proclaiming the gospel, among any number of other things that he suffered. And he said, but I can count it joy because no matter what I've suffered, I see that you're experiencing God's grace. You're hearing his message. You're being reconciled to him. And that's worth any suffering I can endure. That's an incredible thing. And I have joy that God would let me be a part of that display of his grace as he reconciles you. And we also are invited to endure suffering with joy. Hebrews 13, 12 through 15 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, as you read that verse and as you think about this, this section, as we've been talking about the call to ministry of reconciliation, it's important to note God didn't tap us on the shoulder and say, all right, this is like your college hazing. Like if you can suffer through all of this stuff, then we'll know you're one of us and you can come enjoy. God said, no, no, no. I have initiated, I sent my son out to die so that you could be restored. And you know what? He's out there doing a mighty work of reconciling people. And if you want to experience me, then leave the comfort of your home like Jesus did. Go outside the city gates where Jesus died on the cross and join him in the work. In essence, he said, my son led the way in suffering, but through that I had displayed my glory and I've redeemed and restored you. And I'm inviting you to come be a part of the work I'm doing of redeeming and reconciling people. But it's not going to be in the comfort of your life. You might be uncomfortable, but, but I'm not sending you out to do my dirty work. I'm inviting you to come be where I'm at work. And it's important that we recognize that. There was a quote that I heard in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I wish I could remember who it was that said it. Um, but they said, you're not the means by which we accomplish what we want to get done. Ministry is the means by which God engages you. I think this is incredibly important for all of us to let it sink deeply when we invite you into community groups or serving at the church or various things, we are giving an opportunity to obey when we respond to God's call in our life. We're given a chance to abide with God as we entrust ourselves to him. We're given a chance to experience him as he works through us to accomplish the things that he's purposed to do. We want you to understand that you're called to ministry we want you to be equipped for ministry and we want you to understand that it is an incredibly joyful invitation that God, would, that God would see fit to ask any of us to be a part of what he's doing. We are all unfit and yet that's part of how he displays his glory is working through us to show grace to others so that they too can know him and be restored into relationship with him. As I say that, I want to kind of throw an idea out and challenge some of you with a thought, and I hope you'll take it with the spirit that it's intended. You're welcome to attend with no expectations, especially those of you that are not Christians. Uh, you're welcome to come and to ask questions and, and to attend without serving. You're welcome to come and attend without attending community groups or being involved. But it's important for you to know that you're not really one of us. And I don't mean that to be exclusive or condescending, but, but God's people are marked by the way they respond and they worship him by being obedient to the call and the charge that he's given us. And so God's people are marked because they prioritize relationships the way God prioritizes relationships. They're marked by the fact that they're gracious to one another and they extend grace and they pursue each other and proclaim the gospel to one another. 
They get equipped so they can be engaged in the work that God's doing, and they have a heart to want to be involved in the work God's doing. And, and so if you're here and your heart's not aligned with those things, that's fine, and we want you to come in here, and we hope someday your heart would be aligned. I just don't want you to fool yourselves, because if you're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a part of this family, and you're not a part of any of those things, and your heart's not stirred for any of those things, we would be unloving to let you walk in that foolishness and to think that you're actually enjoying the fullness of what God has for you because you're missing out on what he's purposed if you don't have a heart for those things and you're not involved in the things that God has called us to be involved in. So again, hear that as a word of love, not as a rebuke or a criticism or something to ostracize you, but an invitation. We want you to experience the joy that comes from being fully involved in the works of the Lord. So let me transition now and just kind of tie things together with two stories. The first is a story, and I have the permission of these parties, so I'm not disclosing anything inappropriate. They have both said that this is fine. I won't share any names. But the first is a story of a single man. He uh, came to the church a few months ago, and we helped him get connected to a community group. He was really excited to get plugged in and to serve. And uh, fairly shortly after he had gotten involved here, he came in one Sunday with a girlfriend, and he sought out one of the pastors, and he said, hey, I'd love to talk. And they sat down and they said, man, we're, we're, we both have been divorced and we realize this relationship has escalated very quickly and, and we're really concerned. We want to be pure and we want to, to manage this relationship in a way that honored God, but we're struggling. And we had a great talk and we, we opened a dialogue with this community group leader and they were walking that out and seeking help and guidance. But in the midst of things, he fell into sin and they began sleeping together and, and were not honoring God with their relationship. And in the guilt of that, he stopped coming to church. Uh, I didn't know any of this at the time, but um, I had had a chance to meet him early on. And at some point I saw him. I hadn't seen him in a while. And I saw him. I was like, hey, I'd love to hear how you're doing and check in. And we happened to slip aside. And he said, man, honestly, I haven't been in a number of weeks. I have been sleeping with my girlfriend. We've not been honoring the Lord. I actually was so ashamed I wouldn't come to church. But there was enough relationship by God's grace. He felt that it was okay. And he kept going to his community group. And despite his guilt and not coming to church, he kept attending with his community group. And they kept loving him and pursuing him, challenging him. And even on that Sunday, he allowed me to speak into his life, and I challenged him, and, and he had broken up the relationship, but he admitted. He said, you know, over my life, I've actually fallen into this several times, and each time I feel guilty. So I go to a new church, and then when I get there, I tell him, well, I had sin, but it was in the past. He said, because I always thought they demanded that I have my act together, and I knew I didn't. And so I'd start over again, hoping, well, maybe this time I'll be okay, but the truth was the pattern just kept repeating. And the problem was he wasn't walking his sin out with anyone. He didn't have anyone to challenge him. He wasn't exhorting one another. He didn't have anyone exhorting him. He just kept waiting, thinking, well, maybe someday I'll be perfect. It's like, man, you won't be. You need people that love you and that will challenge you and walk these things out with you. And you need to be known and walk in transparency with folks because we love you and we want to help you get away with those patterns or do away with those patterns so you can walk in the newness of life. So by God's grace, he, instead of leaving the church and repeating the pattern, he found a place where he could be safe, and he went to his community group and walked that out, and his community group leader is walking through the book Redemption with him so he can better understand God's redemptive plan because he admitted it's not fully connecting. I don't get if God's restored me and redeemed me why I'm still struggling with this sin, and they're walking that out, and he's learning how the gospel applies in his life in some areas of brokenness. Another couple came a number of years ago, and they had actually been believers, and they had been at church for a number of years, but they were struggling in their relationship. Uh, they were afraid to go to anyone in their church because their church was a place where it was like, hey, if you're saved by Jesus, your life should be together, and you shouldn't have any problems anymore. Well, they had problems, and they were struggling, so they were ashamed to go to the people in the church they had been at for so many years. They came here, 
and very quickly asked to get connected to a community group. They heard that that's where we kind of live life out and where we provided care and shepherding for one another. They started attending a community group, and by God's grace, they saw relationships that were honest and transparent and intentional. They saw people um, being gracious to one another and yet holding the gospel high and pointing each other to truth, uh, giving grace but calling people to change. And they felt safe in that. They realized everyone here is broken. Like, we're okay to be broken too. So they sought out after a few months, just a few months. They've been at their other church for years. In just a few months, they sought out the community group leader. They said, can we have dinner? And at dinner, they sat down and began to share their story. And in their history, they had had struggles with communication. And that had led to a feeling of emotional disconnect. And in that disconnect, the wife, longing for emotional connection with somebody, had begun an emotional affair. That had led to her going out in a foolish night and having a date with this individual who then proceeded to rape her. And she came back to her husband broken and ashamed, and they were broken. And as a Christian couple, they wanted help, and they couldn't find it in the church because they were afraid to be honest for the fear of the condemnation and the shame they'd receive. And so for months, they carried that until finally they said, we have to find a new church. And again, that's where the story started, and they were here. And they had seen those relationships, and they shared this with their community group leader, and they said, we need help. We know we're broken, and we don't understand why we're struggling because God's grace is supposed to make all this go away, but we're still wrestling in the community group with love and grace that, yes, his grace covers that sin, and he wants to redeem and restore you, but it's going to be a long road of progress because you're not perfect yet. And that group began to walk alongside them, to love them, and to care for them, and they saw a dramatic change in their marriage. They were on the brink of divorce. They were literally seeing counselors and wrestling through things, and yet now they're healthy and vibrant. They're involved in the church. They are still struggling. We all do. There are areas they're still growing in, but they have a vibrant, healthy marriage that is wrestling towards Christ and where they are encouraging each other towards Christ. And I want you to notice in both of those stories what it took for those situations to go well. And I'll be candid. As a church, we do not get this right all the time. So don't hear me proclaiming like because of these values, we get it right and this is a perfect, safe place to be. We'll make mistakes, but by God's grace, hopefully we'll get it right more than we get it wrong. But here's what happened in those stories. Number one, there was a priority of relationship. In both of those stories, the primary care was not done by the pastors. It was by people in the body that were loving them. They were community groups that brought the people in and, and were sharing the gospel and living life with one another, proclaiming the gospel to each other. It was people that had a priority of relationship. When they were new, they were quickly engaged and invited in, priority of relationship. There was progress, not perfection. The people in community groups were leading with brokenness, showing these people it was safe to be honest about their sin and their struggles. The members were equipped for ministry. Instead of the people showing up and saying, hey, we're struggling, and the members saying, oh, I don't, you need to find somewhere else. We don't know how to deal with your junk. The members said, come in and let's talk about it because we're all broken too. They knew the gospel. They could share the gospel and speak the gospel into the other people's lives. Um, in the first case, I happened as a pastor to run into the guy a few times, but it was largely the community group that did all of that. In the first case, it was all the community group. I don't think there was any direct pastoral involvement. It was the body ministering to one another and understanding their call to the work of the ministry, loving and caring for one another. And it's critical we get this as a church. All of this is made possible by the blood of Jesus. We can't say relationships are important or that it's about progress, not perfection, or call members to be equipped without the gospel behind it. It's God who values relationship and pursues us. It's God who is gracious to pursue us even when we're sinful and is gracious to us to draw us back. 
It is God who wants us to experience him. So it's God that invites us into the work of the ministry. All of this that we've talked about today is founded on the grace of Jesus and the purposes that God has put in place. They're not just some interesting ideals we thought would be fun for us to hang our hat on as we move forward as a church. So with that, and I thank you for um, your patience and listening today, I want to call us to a time of response In the call to response, the first thing we're going to do is take time to give tithes and offerings. So for our financial stewards, if you'd be gracious and come forward now and go ahead and pass the buckets. Um, If you are a guest with us today or a non-believer, just know that we don't expect anything from you. We don't want you to feel any obligation to give. If, If you have a heart to and a desire to, you're welcome to, but there's no expectation. This is an opportunity for us who call this church home to respond in worship to all the work that God has done for us by acknowledging him as our God and Savior and the provider of all that we have by giving back to him so that the church can be healthy and and see the gospel go forward and proclaimed. While they're passing the buckets, I want to walk through some questions and encourage you to take note of these. Um, You won't have time probably to write them all down, but catch what you can and the rest will be posted tomorrow with the sermon online at soundcitybiblechurch.com. I want you to think and wrestle through, how is God challenging you to grow in prioritizing relationship with him and others? How can you be more intentional about letting yourself be known and loved and challenged with the gospel? And conversely, how can you be more intentional about seeking others to know them, love them, and challenge them with the gospel? How can you be more intentional about getting equipped for the work of the ministry that God's purposed you for? And how is God challenging you to become a better steward of the ministry that he's purposed you for? I think for every one of us, as we wrestle with these, there's a lot that we can wrestle with that God would speak to our hearts. So I encourage you to take those, wrestle through them personally, and then as community groups, really wrestle through what that looks like, both individually and corporately as a community group. We're going to respond in two other ways. We're also going to respond in communion. And guys, the communion table is a beautiful picture of the very thing we've been talking about, how God has restored us into relationship through Christ. Because when we come forward to the table, we partake of the bread and the wine or the juice per your conscience, but we partake of those as a remembrance of God's body and blood that was shed, his body that was broken and his blood that was shed as a payment for our sins, knowing that we could never make things right with God, but his blood covered that, just like in the Passover where the blood on the doorpost allowed the angel of death to pass by even while they were harboring idols. And it's true for us, even as we're harboring idols and sin, his blood covers us. And so when we come to the table, it is through Jesus that we are reunited with God and our relationship with God is restored. It's also a picture of our restoration with one another because as we all come from whatever backgrounds we come from, we are all made one and we partake of the same blood, the same body through the communion table. So it's a reminder that we're restored with one another. This is an open table, so even if you're from another church, if you're a believer, we invite you to partake. If you're not a believer, we'd ask you to abstain, but this is also an invitation to you. We would love to invite you to acknowledge God as your Savior, and to acknowledge that Jesus died, and so that you could be restored too. God longs to restore relationship with you, and you're welcome to respond and to confess your need for him as a Savior and to acknowledge him as your Lord and become a Christian today. And with that, you can come and join us at the communion table as you celebrate being restored into his family. Um, after communion or during communion, we'll also have a time of worship and singing. And the first song is actually a prayer of the Holy Spirit to come and to unite our hearts as one body. And so as we sing, just think about the words and meditate on what God would have impress on your heart. Um, so if y'all will come forward with communion, I'm going to pray. Y'all can go ahead and stand. 
After I'm done praying, as you're ready, you can take communion and we'll all worship together. So let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your incredible work that you have accomplished through Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and raised again so that we could be restored into relationship with you. Thank you for initiating and pursuing us, for having grace when we fail and for being faithful even when we're faithless. And thank you for inviting us into the work that you're doing by inviting us to be ministers and to be part of the ministry you're doing. We pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts and that we would respond indeed to live in worship to you, obeying you and walking closely with you so that the world could see your glory through us. In your name we pray, amen.